Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of the Lunar and Planetary Observers also known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as a dollar a month. If you feel more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive a year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. You can find out more at www.patreon.com slash observers notebook. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Search for ALPO Astronomy. If you search for ALPO, you'll only find dog food. So, <laughs> ALPO Astronomy, make sure you put that in there. And yes, this here podcast has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the Observer's Notebook. And now, this edition of the Observer's Notebook. All right, welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. We have a repeat visitor again to the podcast, Carl Hergenrother. Welcome back, Carl. Thanks for having me for the fourth or is it fifth time now? I think it's the fifth. Yeah, I've been yeah. up there. Now, Carl is the coordinator of the comet section for the ALPO, but we're not going to talk about comets today, are we? No, we're not. Yeah, we're going to talk about a space mission that you have been working on for years. Yeah, and not only me, also the uh, meteorite coordinator at ALPO, Dolores Hill, is also on the mission. That's very true, yeah. So why don't you give everybody just a little bit of background about what you do for a living? Okay, so I'm here at the University of Arizona, in, in Tucson, Arizona, where I'm an astronomer, mostly specializing in the observation of comets and asteroids. And over the years, I've worked for a bunch of different groups, including the Catalina Sky Survey, which is you know one of the leading asteroid discovery teams in the world. But over the last, oh, geez, 14 years now, I've been working on a mission called OSIRIS-REx, which is a NASA-funded mission to go collect samples from a nearby near-Earth asteroid. Now, that's an acronym, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, the old days of the, you know, Explorer 1, 2, and 3 are over. Almost every mission now has an ac- acronym. Yeah. Um, if this so were to I'm fix not, these... So I'm going to ask you, what does it mean? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so OSIRIS-REx. So it actually explains basically all the science goals and investigations that we're conducting. So the first O is for origins, 
we're going to an object that hasn't changed much over to, or suppose or we're hoping hasn't changed much over the history of the solar system and hopefully will tell us something about the origins not only of where water on the earth came from but even the organics that life originally rose from came as well and then there's spectral interpretation we have all these telescopes out there looking at you know hundreds of thousands of asteroids from the earth and we've got colors on them and we've got spectra as well but what does that really mean what does that really tell us about what the asteroids are made of which feeds into the next two letters in the acronym which is resource identification where again we're up close to this object we're studying it what is it actually made of what kind of resources are on it and does this object actually have the resources that in the future humans could actually live off of once we start spreading out into the solar system and the last s in osiris is for security one of the investigations we're conducting is looking at what we call the Yurkovsky effect, which is a uh, thermal effect where one side of the asteroid heats up as it's rotating, and as that's, uh, the hot side of the asteroid rotates kind of into the night side, it radiates that heat. And these asteroids, even though they seem very large, are objects about 500 meters across, this kind of constant thermal pulse coming off the hot side of the asteroid actually acts as a thruster and starts moving the asteroid. And over years, it will actually change the orbit. And that's one of the primary mechanisms of moving asteroids into a resonance that allows a, a planet like Jupiter or Saturn to change it onto an Earth-crossing orbit. And this Yarkovsky effect is also one of the things that really makes it hard to predict whether or not an object is dangerous a couple hundred years from now. Interesting. And then the final three letters, REX, stands for Regulith Explorer. And regolith is really kind of a sciencey term for studying the rocks on the surface. Okay. Wow, that's a that's a really good. I like that acronym. You know, <laughs> it spells out exactly what the mission profile is. Now, now, where what is the current mission status? So right now we are approaching our asteroid, and we've been observing the asteroid since August seventeenth. And in fact, we are I think today, which is October nineteenth. Okay. We are about 5,000 kilometers away from the asteroid. We only in the last couple of days, we've actually got our first images where we can resolve the asteroid. It's bigger than a few pixels across. Still not big enough to tell us much about its shape, but enough to actually see that, you know, there's a body that we're coming up to. Now, we already have an idea of the shape of the asteroid, though, right? Through light curves. We do, we do. I mean, one of the reasons why we went to this particular asteroid, which is actually 101955 Bennu, is because it's one of the... M best characterized asteroids that we haven't sent a spacecraft to already. Now, part of that, you know, being so well characterized is because, well, it was the OSIRIS-REx target, and we've been making a really concerted effort to study it over the last couple of years. But one of the reasons why it was selected, and we made this selection back, I think, 2005, 2006 as our target, was because it had these radar observations from Arecibo in Puerto Rico and Goldstone, which is in California, part of the NASA Space Network. So we actually do have a nice, low resolution, but a nice model of the asteroid showing that it's fairly spherical, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of boulders on it, which is one of the things we're looking for. We, you know, it makes it a little safer to, to sample. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing about the so Bennu was selected quite a while ago. Yeah, it was. Um, we first started thinking about this mission in 2004, 
And uh, it's, it's so the Osiris Rex mission is a New Frontiers mission, which is you know one of these what they call principal investigator missions, where um, a university or a science institution teams up with industry partners to propose a mission to NASA, and then NASA holds a competition where they you know they take all the proposals, they'll down select them to a few, it'll do it in, in another round of competition, and then ev- eventually select one or two to go forward. And so OSIRIS-REx is what we call a New Frontiers mission, and it really is a collaboration between the University of Arizona, as well as Lockheed Martin, who builds our spacecraft, uh, NASA Goddard, which is based in Maryland, who does a lot of management and oversight. And Okay, did not know that. And also a bunch of, and a lot of our instruments are actually uh, produced really all around the world. We have one instrument that actually is produced in Canada which is OLA, which is our laser, it's a LIDAR, actually, as well as laser altimeter. There are The cameras are made here, the OCAMS cameras, of which there are three of them, SAMCAM, PolyCAM, and MAPCAM, are made here at the University of Arizona. There's OTIS, which is a thermal infrared spectrometer, which is made up in Arizona State, up in Phoenix, or Tempe area. There's OVIRS, which is a visible infrared spectrometer, which comes from Goddard as well. And then there's a student experiment called REXIS, which is a X-ray spectrometer, which is a collaboration between Harvard and MIT. And so we started this mission in 2004. At the time, it was just called OSIRIS, and we proposed a discovery level, which is smaller than New Frontiers, and ultimately weren't selected. But we tried again in 2007, and at that time, Bainu had already been We'd already recognized it as a good target, so it was our target in 2007. And we were selected to go to phase A, which you can almost think of as kind of the playoffs or the finals. Um, and we were up against a few other missions that ultimately weren't selected. Uh, the Grail mission that uh, mapped the gravity of the moon was selected instead. And then in 2010, we submitted this proposal again, but now a much beefed-up mission in the New Frontiers class with all the other instruments that I just mentioned added to it. And ultimately, we were selected in 2011. So it took about five years to you know, design everything, build a spacecraft, get everything tested. We launched in September 2016. We did an Earth flyby using the Earth's gravity to push us into the orbit of our target asteroid in September 2016. Sorry, September 2017. And starting on August 17th of this year was the first time we actually imaged our target asteroid. And only recently, in the last couple of days, we were actually been able to resolve our asteroid and see it as more than a few pixels across. Now, for the rest of the next pretty much year or more, almost 18 months, we're going to be conducting a lot of different phases of our investigations as we're trying to study this asteroid. So right now we're in what's called the approach phase, which sounds exactly mm-hmm. like it sounds. This is when we're approaching up on the asteroid. Uh, we're studying it as when it was a point source, kind of like the same way you would study an asteroid through your backyard telescope. You're doing light curves, colors, seeing how bright it is, trying to see, you know, kind of comparing what the spacecraft sees with what we saw from the Earth. It's also a time where we look for any hazards that might be around the asteroid. We conducted a search looking for dust around the asteroid in case it is a, you know, kind of stealth comet and didn't detect any. Um, soon we're going to be looking for any satellites that might be in orbit around Bainu. We know from the radar observations that there are no 
large satellites, nothing larger than a couple meters across, but there could definitely be smaller ones, and we will be looking for smaller ones. And then starting in November is when we really start seeing the full shape of this object, and we start doing, not exactly every day, but every couple of days, we'll do mapping campaigns to kind of build up a shape model to figure out exactly what the shape of the object is, what size it is, um, how fast it's spinning, what its pole orientation is. And then starting in January, uh, sorry, starting in early December of this year, we start doing a number of maneuvers where we fly to within about seven kilometers of the asteroid. And these maneuvers are not only to get closer to get better images and better uh, science, but also allow us to start probing the gravity of the asteroid and really figuring out its gravity. Right. You have to know that before you get it close and actually start orbiting. Now, I, I was reading on the uh, Osiris Rest website about the baseball diamond phase. Yeah, so the one I just talked about was preliminary survey, and then we actually fall into a one and a uh, we we enter a one and a half kilometer orbit starting late December, early January, and there we don't do much in the way of collecting any kind of imaging or spectral data, so much as we're almost treating the spacecraft like a test particle and really mapping out the gravity field of the asteroid. Once we have that mapped out, we actually leave orbit, and we go into what's called detailed survey, which has two parts. One part is baseball diamond, as you mentioned. Another part is equatorial station. And baseball diamond is occurring starting in, in February, and that's where we kind of, we're observing it from different phase angles, trying to get different angles on the asteroid to really build up a better shape model and photometric model as well of the asteroid. And then the equatorial stations, which are mostly occurring in May, is where we start, we'll make these five kilometer passes at different longitude stations. And the longitude is not really the longitude on the body as it's rotating so much as kind of solar longitude. So we have one station that's at 1230, we have another one you know, at 320, and basically to um, observe the asteroid again from all different times of the day, and that's really for not just mapping, but also for thermal, to really get a good idea of the thermal inertia, which tells us something about the, uh, the size distribution of the regolith that we're trying to sample. Now, speaking of sampling, I believe the, it's called a tag, which is touch and go maneuver. Yeah, so even before we get there, we go back into orbit again, what we're calling Orbital B, and this is uh, around the June-July time frame, and that's a one-kilometer orbit. And interesting thing to note is that when you're orbiting an object this small, um, in fact, this is by far the smallest object that humans have ever attempted to orbit. orbit. Oh, my God. That's, that's... Yeah. So remember the Rosetta mission, which went to Comet 67P a couple of years ago. That was the smallest object ever orbited. And it has a mass 500 times larger than the object we're going to. Now, the Japanese missions, Hayabusa 1 and 2, have gone to similarly small objects, but they didn't attempt to orbit them. In fact, they kind of station keep at a fairly safe distance from the asteroid. So orbit orbital B is when we're in a one-kilometer orbit, and because the gravity of this object is so small, you can actually be pulled, pushed out of your orbit by solar radiation forces, almost the solar wind acting on your spacecraft. Your spacecraft is kind of like a big kite. 
And so the only stable orbit for on the order of weeks to months is actually a terminator orbit. Really? So, yeah, you're orbiting the object in a plane that's perpendicular to the sun. So we'll be orbiting over the terminator of the asteroid, looking down on it, and of course looking a little bit towards the sunward side and doing a lot of intense mapping, as well as a lot of uh, using OLA, our LIDAR, to really get you know good ranging to the surface as well. You get images that way as well. And once we've completed orbital B, we do what's called recon, reconnaissance phase. And now we're talking more of the fall of, of 2019. And this is where we have identified a number of sites that are you know good sample sites. And we do very close flybys. We do a 525-meter flyby, and then we drop down to a 225-meter flyby to get very high-resolution imaging and <coughs> spectral observations of the surface. And only after that's done, then we start going through a whole series of rehearsals for our tag, which is touch-and-go, where we drop down, I think, to, to a couple hundred meters, and we drop down to 50 meters and 20, and eventually we actually do the tag itself. And now that the device used to, to tag, I was looking at that as well. Can you describe some of that? Yeah, so we don't actually land on the asteroid. I mean, it really is a tag. So as a spacecraft, we, we drop down to around 30 meters above the surface, and then we go into free fall. Now, this is a small object. It's only 500 meters across. So its gravity is its only microgravity. And so we only accelerate up to a couple centimeters per second as we fall. <clears throat> we have a large arm that extends out, and it's got a shock absorber on the arm. And at the end of the arm is what we call the tag head. And if you remember, for those of us who are old enough, the old kind of round air filters that you would drop in, that's what this tag, tag head is actually built around. It's this round air filter. It touches the surface, almost instantaneous with touching the surface. There are canisters of inert nitrogen gas that will then blow into the regolith, stir it up, and the stirred up regolith will be kicked up and caught by the air filter. The spacecraft will continue to descend slowly as the shock absorber on this arm compresses. And then after five seconds or so, we actually kind of pogo stick off the asteroid. And then once we're a safe distance, then the thrusters kick in and we go to a very safe distance, you know, 20, 30, 40 kilometers out and see what we got. We can do three tags. We have enough nitrogen canisters to conduct three tags. Um, if the first one is successful, we're done. We'll be able to look directly into the, the tag head itself and image it, as well as do a bunch of moment of inertia tests to see, basically detect the change in mass in the, the tag head. So yeah, I, I pretty much wear two hats on this mission. Um, one, I'm the astronomy lead, which means I'm conducting all of the observations that are really being conducted right now, where we're studying the asteroid when it's still a point source, and, it's comp and we're studying it using techniques and methods the same as we do from the Earth. So I helped conduct the <coughs> search for dust that might have been in the vicinity of Bainu. Turns out there wasn't any. I'm going to be conducting the natural satellite search where we look for satellites in orbit around the asteroid, as well as um, doing light curves, colors, phase function type photometry observations as well. The other thing that I've been working on is I'm part of the science planning team. So in addition to you know, collecting some of the data and reducing it, 
I'm also planning other observations that are going on and helping that team as well. So what's the planned return date of the spacecraft? So we were expecting to get our sample by the summer of 2020, but then it takes us, just like it took us a couple of years after launch to get to the asteroid, it actually takes us a couple of years to get back to the Earth. Um, the asteroid and the Earth are in a, a six-year synodic period. You can almost think of it as like you know, a NASCAR race. Where mm. It takes six laps for one car to lap the other one. And so we end up you know, kind of at a slave of celestial dynamics here. So we leave the asteroid in 2020, but we don't actually return the sample back to Earth until September 2023, where, where it will land in, up in Utah, where there's a, a test range. Okay. And what center will be receiving the particles and the samples? They will go to Johnson Space Center, which, as most people, people may know, is also where the, the lunar samples are right. all curated. Great. Is there any additional information you'd like to share with us about the mission? Yeah. Um, we're not the only mission. Um, right now, the Japanese have a mission, Hayabusa 2, and they're going, and you may have seen the pictures, are already out there because they're already at their asteroid. And in fact, they've already, they haven't attempted to get a sample yet, but they have dropped re- really close to the asteroid and dropped off some CubeSats on the surface. And their asteroid, Ryugu, looks a lot like what we expect our asteroid to look like, which is kind of interesting. Um, partially, it's because they're both carbonaceous. They're both extremely dark. They're roughly similar in size. Their object's about one kilometer across. Ours is 500 meters across. But they both have this very distinctive, not quite spherical, but kind of we like to talk about like two diamonds on top of each other, where you kind of have almost, where you have this ridge effect around the equator. And, it, and this is turning out to be a very common shape for a lot of near-Earth asteroids. Hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> why, why is that? So why is that? Yeah, I was hoping you would ask. Um, <laughs> so a lot of these objects, they're rubble piles. They don't, ah. they don't, you know, they're not, when you think of the asteroid, you think, oh, it's one big solid chunk of rock. But after, you know, billions of years of being smashed and running into each other and pulverized by impacts and such, <clears throat> they're really just a collection of what we call rubble, rubble piles. Space erosion. Yeah, they're made of much smaller pieces. Over time... Similar to the Yarkovsky effect that I mentioned earlier, there's this Yorp effect, which is the same thing. It's thermal forces on the surface because this, you know, differential heating on the surface. But it will actually change the rotation rate of the asteroid. And if the asteroid spins up, and for carbonaceous objects, that might be a rotation period on the order of, you know, three hours, four hours. For other objects, maybe two hours. If they spin up too fast, they will actually shed material. And so you can start with an object that's kind of like Itukawa was, which was the Hayabusa 1 target, or Eros, which which is the near target. You spin them up, eventually they're going to split. And what you're left with are, you know, the primary kind of snaps back into this more spherical type shape with an equatorial ridge. And that equatorial ridge, there's still some debate as to whether or not that's material that has is about to escape, was kind of at that breaking point, or is material that cl- came back down on the surface. Now, you say spin them up, and when you say that, I think of comets. Mm-hmm. The jets on comets. Is that what's occurring on the asteroid as well? No. Um, so, similar to the Yurkovsky effect, the asteroid heats up, and as it rotates, it starts ah. you know, this thermal pulse, thermal impulse. And so, in a way, it, it is a jet, but it's not the jet as you would think with comets where you've got you know gas jetting off the surface got it got it 
Wow, this is you're going to be busy. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, we're already busy. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to me about it too, because it's we've been trying to figure out a perfect time to do this, and you're now hitting the point in the mission where uh, weekends. What? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Man. Pretty much. All right, Carl. For th- well, thanks for coming on the podcast, and I'll add uh, any contact information in the show notes below. Thanks for having me. All right, well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank Carl Hergenrather for coming on and talking about the OSIRIS-REx mission. You could tell we had a few little audio problems along the way, and he was a real trooper and hung with me as I started and restarted and restarted a few times with the podcast. We have some audio problems I'm trying to get uh, figured out at the moment, and I think I've got a little answer to it, but um, upcoming podcasts, hopefully, will have a lot clearer audio. We upload new episodes of The Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And now you can listen on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and Amazon Echo. You can help support podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month while you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and become a producer of the podcast. With that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at @observersnbpod. If you want to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy or the podcast Facebook page at Observer's Notebook. Until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.